0: Welcome to Talking Strategy Making History.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to episode two of season two of Talking Strategy Making History. Uh, In this episode, we're going to talk about socialism in the United States, the peculiar and and, and special uh, history of this global movement and ideology here uh, in America. Um, we're going to start with, uh, as, as Dick put it, trying to squeeze at least a quarter's worth of history lectures into uh, five minutes, uh, given a, a brief uh, overview of, of socialist history in the U.S., which is much richer than, uh, I think, the average person, the average American, and certainly the American media, um, uh, you know, portray it or think about it. Um, and then we want to delve into the, the questions of, you know, why and how uh, left movements historically have avoided the S word here in the United States, unlike in many other parts of the world. And um, and Dick, uh, I know, wants to delve into the the particular as a sort of case study the the new left that he was so instrumental in in building and shaping here in the United States and their relationship with socialism as a set of ideas and as a word.
0: I think you're right on target, Doraka, and I'm um, eager for the conversation.
1: Excellent. So so socialism started in the United States or uh, came to the United States uh, and other uh, European colonies, much the way that it did in in Europe Um, and in the the places like uh, Germany and Poland, Scandinavia, or even Britain that we think of as cradles of socialist thinking. Um, it, It happened starting in the 19th century in the form of labor movement radicalism. Uh, particularly in places like San Francisco and New York, uh, uh, cities or communities in the United States that were really at the hub of 19th century capitalism. Um, you, you right away had resistance from the, the workers who were being exploited and used and uh, underpaid and undervalued in that process. Um, But it also bubbled up starting in the 19th century here in the United States as a set of radical democratic reformist ideas, again, the same way that it did in Europe. And this uh, uneasy coalition between the labor movement as a source uh, and an engine for uh, driving socialist or left politics and a more um, intellectual or middle class or values based um, uh, kind of um, uh, political style or political tradition Um, and everywhere uh, that socialism has taken root. You've you've seen these two different currents uh, in in an uneasy relationship. Um, And all of this, you know, continued as the United States was a a location, a a giant economy, uh, bringing in workers from all over the world. Uh, And so workers who had already started or joined trade unions or socialist groups um, at home in Russia or Germany or Italy. They brought those ideas with them here to the United States.
0: One thing that occurs to me though is that the most popular socialism was expressed by the candidacy of Eugene Victor Debs, uh, who was a st- right. straight-arrow American, right? He was right out of Indiana. He converted to the Socialist Party from, and helped found it. Uh, from having been a, like a democratic politician. But he, I always think of a, a moment. He's in jail because he led this vast general strike of railroad workers in 1894. And, um, and they, he was jailed. And he served, I think, a year in jail. And he did some reading there, which is always dangerous. And uh, he came out of jail converted to the need for socialism, that the two-party system, as he understood it, couldn't serve the workers' cause, and we needed, we needed our own party. He went back to jail during World War I, where he, he, was, he spoke against the draft and against the war, and that was a crime for which he served several years in jail. And while in jail, he ran for president and got almost a million votes. So, you could use that as both a measure of the popular strength of what he was uh, seen as the leader of, but also its limitations. only got a million votes he he wasn't really contending for the presidency. But what do we know about the larger socialist party of which he was the the figurehead?
1: Well, at that time, uh, when he was making his historic runs for president, um, we also saw a real uptick in uh, socialists being elected, you know, in the early part of the 20th century around the country, mostly at the municipal level, um, but also at the state level. And, and not just people that we're affiliated with or members of the Socialist Party uh, of the United States, but, you know, socialists of other stripes, um, labor radicals who maybe used different terminology, but were part of an explicit laborist or farmer worker uh, alliance in electoral politics. Um, And, you know, that was a high watermark for socialism and socialist um, uh, expressions in electoral politics until today, until today. Um, And something that you pointed out, and I think in our introduction, right, is that I think we have to admit that uh, (laughs) there were a lot of mistakes made in that early, that first wave by the Socialist Party, including a kind of sectarianism in which they refused cooperation with other political parties. If their elected officials, you know, started to work too closely with uh, populist Democrats or progressive Democrats or Republicans, since they were split between the major parties at the time, they could get you know recalled or denounced or had their party membership stripped. So there was this moment in which even though we were in the United States with a very peculiar electoral system, peculiar electoral, Culture. Uh, socialists were trying to build a, a political party very much on the model of the parties that were gaining in strength and, and governing in Europe.
0: Well, that wasn't that party in the, in the U.S. was parallel in time uh, with the Labor Party in Britain, which was explicitly socialist. And I guess I don't know too much about the German Social Democratic Party. had more had a longer history before that. Uh, but other European parties probably started around the same early 20th century, right?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, or or, or became electorally powerful then yeah. even if they were started. So
0: when I've taught this history a bit, I, I would say if we were giving the course, this course, when the Socialist Party was founded in the early days, we might not have seen it as that different from what was happening in Europe.
1: That's right. That's the bottom line. I think it's really important to understand that at a certain point, Th- there really isn't that much of a difference. The actual groups of people are overlapping because of immigration, migration. Um, there's both a, a native, you know, Terre Haute-born, Debsian kind of socialist thing happening, a Christian socialist thing happening um, in various pockets of life in the United States. And then uh, you know we have to admit a very immigrant-driven, um, continental socialist consciousness among parts of the working class. And in fact, you know, you in the late 19th and early 20th century, you actually have socialists and in, uh, in, in labor leaders in Europe looking at the United States with jealousy um, and saying, why can't uh, European workers be as militant and as radical in their demands and, and willing to strike as American workers? But then there's a divergence.
0: That's right, well, even, even that. So the militancy of American labor actions, which included a lot of direct, physical combat and killings of people were, were killed by, by police forces and stuff. A lot of people went to jail. Uh, the militancy wasn't necessarily coupled in all cases with a radical ideology, but, it, but uh, a, a kind of combat attitude. The class struggle was real, apparently, in the minds of the South or in the, on the railroad industry or in uh, the textile industry wars of of southern textile factories these are amazing struggles um, that have been lost to most people's memory but they were very vivid powerful moments i used to say we it would be great if hollywood would make some class struggle movies not just westerns cowboys and indians and ranchers and settlers but how about miners and their and their bosses. So I think you're leading up in the story, however, to a big break here, and that probably also true in Europe, which was the Bolshevik Revolution. Lenin uh, and the Bolsheviks in so in Russia uh, declaring themselves to be Marxists, uh, not only fighting in opposition to the regime, the Czarist regime, but taking power, uh, which had never happened before, in the name of of socialism. And of course, that meant socialists uh, everywhere had to line up on board with the with the Bolsheviks, or uh, hostile to them for various reasons. So, what's what's your summary depiction of how this worked out in the USA?
1: Well, I, I'd actually say that the before the successful Bolshevik re- revolution, th- there were another set of splits or crises in the movement that in some ways were directly related, in other ways were sort of presupposed that split. And that's that, unlike in the United States where socialists in the early 20th century were winning elections in cities, you know, uh, getting some city council people here, members of the state legislature, in Europe they started to win national power. Right. And then there's a question of you're, you're, you're running a country, you're running a capitalist economy, and this really threw socialists for a loop, um, because um, in their theory, in Marxist theory, you know, there's supposed to be this revolution or something, some cleavage between capitalist and socialist society. So what happens when you're in charge of the capitalist economy? And for a long time, the kind of orthodox socialist approach, especially in places like Germany and France, was, well, we can't do very much. We shouldn't tinker that much with capitalism. We should let capitalism develop and then inevitably there'll be a revolution or something and we'll have socialism. And it was really the Scandinavians more than anybody else that pioneered this idea that you could be socialists running a capitalist economy to socialist ends and to actually really get in and intervene in the way that the economy is structured, um, Start to make uh, these these massive changes to the labor market, build welfare states, et etc. So a little bit before the Russian Revolution, there was already this other tradition starting in socialism of like, w- we have to do what we can right now and not wait for the revolution. And then there was this revolution. Well, wait the, the, the other
0: the other feature was the World War I, and uh, you know, was the German Social Democrats support? The Germans' government in the war effort, um, they did uh, to a great extent, or they split profoundly over that. So in this country, the Socialist Party and the, and the and IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was sort of a syndicalist socialist movement, all opposed World War I that's why bebs went to jail but in europe there was a big division right in, in the socialist yeah ranks and there.
1: and and it's important because that's become such a talking point in communist uh history right, right? that that this is where socialism failed a moral test supported this Im- horrible i mean horrible imperialist charnel house of a war um and so that's why communism and the leninist strategy is better blah 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 um you know, the, the actual positions of the socialist parties in Europe on the war were more complicated and nuanced, including in Germany. But it was um, exactly as you say like that was a split that that i'm saying was already fundamental and political and about overall strategy around capitalism. then the question was called in this very radical way of which side are you going to be on in this war um, and the socialist left in the United States never really recovered from that trauma of being against a, a national war mobilization. Um, and I think sort of was always seen as foreign and subversive or, or or rather could be painted that way cynically after that.
0: Yeah, the roots of why do we have an FBI was to ferret out the, the alien, radical, anti-patriotic... Um, socialists right. and get rid of them from the society is just one expression of a kind of widespread repression of people who opposed the war mostly who were socialists at the time um, and you know on the other hand one of the features of the left which both you and i um i certainly want to see if we can supersede as a, as a movement is that if there's disagreement that often turns into uh profound moral uh, polarization so that each part of the disagreement becomes a tremendous moral issue whether you're reformist or really revolutionary whether you're actually a sellout or not whether you are secretly betraying the cause or publicly betraying the cause and both sides of these debates as they they unfolded had uh, felt it was warfare was necessary within the left in order to beat that other side that was either morally so compromised or dangerous in one way or another. I'm being very oversimple about a very long and complicated history. Once the communist party of the U S was founded to support the Soviet revolution, that was a split from the socialist party to a large extent. Um, And within the labor unions where both socialists and communists were operating, tremendous warfare in some of those unions uh, between the different factions. And there were factions within factions. Once Trotsky split with Stalin, there were Trotsky factions and Stalinist factions. There were factions within Trotskyism. Um, And a a lot (laughs) of the
1: history... That's the point of Trotsky.
0: Well, a lot of the history of the left... written in the 20s, especially in the 20s and 30s, revolves around these factional warfare battles. Um, Is there any way you can view those battles as having a positive side?
1: Hmm. Well that's why I I guess I try to get back to the fundamental political questions rather than um, the questions of strategy and what socialism should be trying to do. Because I think that then those splits become, I don't know, clearer and easier to read. I I just I mean, for me, I just I think that Leninism was just an awful derailment of uh, of the development of socialism in practice. And so to me, it's been uh, we just kind of recovering from and and need to like push past. I think, uh, decades of uh, just needless harm to the ideas of socialism, not to mention the, you know, the loss of life of really tens of millions of people in a, an, an offshoot of a, of a movement that I think a lot of, you know, well-meaning folks at the time predicted and called out um, and weren't listened to. Oh, i i
0: don't disagree with what you just said and yet uh what leninism as you're referring to it means in the u.s i think are two big things one the belief at least in the early days of the communist party that there was no political path to a socialist revolution you had to have a a military attitude and therefore the party had to be organized in a kind of um top-down Vanguard party military model uh, because combat class struggle was going to be a, a, a literal war. M- more important than that was uh, simply the idea that that it is better for uh, a movement. This was the firm belief I think in the 30s of lots of people in, in the left. Better for a movement to have a strongly, well-trained core of leadership that lived within the movement that was their state of being as people was to form this political hierarchy within the movement that could uh, arrive at strategy and policy uh, efficiently. And then it was anyone who was a member of the party had to have party discipline, they had to implement uh, what that party policy, the party line, uh, came to be. So in the 30s, that party line shifted to a much more small-D democratic, politically oriented, parliamentary uh, way of operating, so-called popular front, broad cultural uh, alliances, coalition politics, critically supporting the New Deal. Uh, armed struggle not on the agenda at all for the communist party uh, in the 30s Um, and uh, yet internally the party still had this this uh, authoritarian
1: structure well and what happened to all the leaders who led that 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 style of communist party organizing in the 30s
0: what happened to them yeah well, the actual party leaders were very doctrinaire and, and even though they were supposed to be the, the font of wisdom, right, because they were the leaders, <laughs> uh, they were the most cut off from, from reality. Their lives were entirely in this narrow organization. And yet the party had also encouraged and socialized large numbers of young people to be organizers in the real world to be labor organizers, to be tenant organizers, community organizers um, throughout the society. And, and these were people, my parents were like this, school teachers uh, who understood their responsibility as teachers to be unionists for teachers, but also to be uh, working for, against racism and working for um, social equality in their communities, in the classroom, and so forth. And so those people, many, many, many more of those existed within the framework of the Communist Party. Uh, Their lives were not necessarily, some of them were, governed by the fate of the party, which ended in a kind of total dead end of repression and, 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 and sectarianism. They remained within their communities and unions and so forth as uh, often as uh, important members of that generation, the more they were critical of their uh, party experience, the better organizers they might be in the real world, I found. I don't know if that analysis makes sense, but that's the world that we young people who wanted to restart the left in the late 50s and early 60s, the world we saw was where these party, like the Communist Party and other Trotskyist parties and the socialist party all of them kind of dead end organizations without that didn't offer much in the way of uh, uh, avenues for change but the members of those parties who who were not the leaders but the but the committed members were often elders that we could learn from and that we were inspired by especially those who had remained within mm-hmm. You know, as labor organizers,
1: my general point here was you—you you were talking specifically about the, the when the Communist Party of the United States had a small D democratic approach, when they lessened their like slavishness to the Soviet Union, when they were like, let's go out and be part of popular movements, let's participate in electoral coalitions inside the Democratic Party, all those things that we look back the like, decade or so when the Communist Party of the United States had a sensible a much better approach to politics, frankly, than socialists did and a lot of other groups. The leadership that pioneered that were thrown out of the party right away afterwards when the, when the Soviet Union said, that's the wrong policy. And that to me is, that's why Leninism was always, always a a mistake a a swamp um, that we're st- like, we're still recovering from because we, because the fact is that even in this upsurge of, not even recovering from, like we're still stuck with, in this upsurge of socialism now that's going on with young people being so excited about transforming the economy and a, a politics to the left of liberalism, there's just all this horrible Leninism out there that's trapping people that's like behaving badly within DSA, et cetera, et cetera. So if, in terms of telling the story of socialism, I feel like, there's one way to be like, oh, but there were these good people working under the banner of Leninism. Like, that's true. But I I just, it was, it's awful. I mean, it's something, in telling the story of this great set of ideas about liberating people, that we have to also acknowledge that that there's a part of the family tree that engineered famines, systematically liquidated ethnic, ethnic groups, put all kinds of good comrades and good people in prisons and work camps. And, you know, as as Mac Shackman said, it was there but the accident of geography that in the United States, people just got purged from the party and had to find new friends.
0: Well, all that, yes, I, I don't, I've never thought that the p- people who were communists in this country believed that these horrors were happening. They were, their delusion was not to support those things, but I don't want to conflate the crimes of the Soviet state and Stalin, Stalin in particular, but they way beyond beyond just his own actions. It was not. It was in no way the state that anybody who was a communist in this country would have claimed to be what they were defending. Some were apologists for it. Most people were were in denial about those crimes and the, and the reality of the soviet union uh horrifyingly in denial but when khrushchev publicly revealed those crimes that led to a huge ferment within the party the remaining party in 1956 there was a hope for a moment uh, a couple of years maybe uh, that the party could be recreated as an independent force Like was happening in Italy, the Italian Communist Party always had a kind of different attitude toward the Soviet Union that really came to the fore in the the mid-50s. Well,
1: generally speaking, from this point of divergence, wherever we want to locate it historically, where socialism, frankly, became more of a mainstream mass politics uh, in Europe than it did in the United States, or really, to be very specific about it, 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 it didn't happen in the United States and happened everywhere else uh, it, where, where capitalism was, was developing. And this question became known as the question of American exceptionalism, why there is no strong socialist movement or politics in the United States and in the mainstream. Um, it's been ironic or interesting or kind of creepy to watch this question of, of, uh, of American history, that's a, a very interesting and g- good one, turned into a, uh, a slogan on the right, you know, that America is exceptional and, and gifted by God with this, you know, specialness that, that means that we don't have to follow any international rules, et cetera, et cetera. But, but originally, this question was posed by historians and social scientists of being like, why did American society develop, po- political society in particular, develop in this way that it doesn't have a strong socialist movement? what's wrong with it really <laughs> um and, and and a lot and a lot of those social scientists were had been youthful
0: socialists and so they'd be absolutely you could almost say american sociology was created in part by by folks who wanted to try to figure out you know why we couldn't have socialism in this country right when, or when, when,
1: or less fatalistically why it hadn't happened or why it was why we took this different route um, because right. frankly as right. you say like some of them are actually motivated and stayed motivated by the question of well how could we have it anyway um, or how can we find an American path to socialism that's that's different than uh, other countries or other societies and so there's been a number of theories that have been posited and you know just reams of, of papers and you know entire floors of academic libraries are filled with books trying to answer this question and I don't know what you think, Dick, but having read a lot of these books over the years i th- I feel like they're all onto to something. I mean t- explaining this really vast uh, political uh uh you know set of of differences um, needs more than one variable, more than one explanation. But some of the most popular ones have been that unlike in Europe, the United States was never a feudal society among white folks at least you know between in terms of the relation the power and economic relationship between uh, whites in the United States. It was never feudal. And so it didn't develop this sense of uh, hard and fast caste-like classes that you had in Europe where people can see themselves as working class <laughs> because they were and their parents were and their parents were and their parents were, and, and no real hope of moving into the upper class because you have to be born into the right family. Um, unlike that, that, at least the mythology in the United States is one of, of class mobility of anybody being able to make it and so forth, which just makes socialism or a Marxist worldview a little bit of a harder sell, if as people have said, and that we're all just like temporarily embarrassed millionaires. So that's made class consciousness uh, a harder sell here in the United States. <laughs> Another similar but simpler explanation is that socialist parties in in Europe really benefited from being the champions of universal suffrage and opening up the vote to new groups of people, whether that was you know, working class men and then women. Um, and in the United States, we started as a republic with, or very early on, extended to pretty universal male suffrage, white male suffrage, sorry. Um, and so the socialist movement was wasn't the beacon of just small d democracy in the united states that it 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 really was historically um in europe there's also of course the fact that a, di- a racially and ethnically diverse working class means it's really easy for uh bosses to divide workers and and not just in you know, that kind of nice clean evil boss as the monopoly guy dividing up the workers kind of model but just in general that If you're a working class, working person, and your boss replaces you with people who look different than you or you already have prejudices against, it's, again, harder to get you to go and think of that person as someone to organize or organize alongside, um, etc. And then I'd say that what I think is one of the more sophisticated takes and one that I've always really liked um, and thought was really powerful is that capitalism, the arguments for capitalism, for free markets for low levels of government intervention, all of those things in the United States have themselves been made on populist grounds and what um, some thinkers have talked about as a socialist capitalism. So whereas in Europe, you might find, uh, especially back 70 years ago, you would have had people defending capitalism by saying, hey, some people just have to be bosses and other people workers. There's just differences. You can't have social chaos of people not knowing their place, people didn't make that argument for capitalism in the United States. The argument they made is, hey, you could be the boss. Um, And by, by keeping, I mean, we see this all the way to right now, right? Where working class people will vote against tax increases on the wealthy because they're going to be wealthy someday. I mean, and that is a thing that I think has stuck in the craw and impeded socialist and social democratic politics and arguments in the united states in this very subtle but persistent way for a very long time
0: what i would add to what you said uh, that, that i've always thought is important is that with respect to racism and, and uh, anti-immigration uh, it wasn't just bosses manipulating the craft union movement which was a kind of class consciousness uh, was organized strongly in this country around ethnic line so it wasn't just that you had carpenters organizing on their craft and excluding you know part of the purpose of the union was to keep the keep the number of qualified carpenters low so that they could have strong bargaining power well those carpenters typically might have been let's say irish uh, and it was not only excluding unskilled people from the trade it was excluding non-irish people let's say from the trade and those divisions are embedded deeply in what we mean by class in this country and you if you add that to the machine the urban machines in the different major cities also strongly ethnically organized you can see that if you were working class and belonged to a certain kind of union and voted a certain kind of way you still might be embedded in a very racist uh framework in terms of attitudes toward other in fact i think it's true that the socialist party in its early days they had an anti-asian immigration policy for example
1: oh, anti- um, oh absolutely yeah there's
0: you know there's uh that so that's one thing but one thing i'd like to highlight which isn't often said is is a kind of um you know what? What's there plausible scenarios uh, after the 30s for a progressively developing left in this country uh, that got derailed? And I think this this it's worth considering that if you took the 30s, you had the the seeds of what could have been an ongoing development developing uh, center left a political and cultural coalition in this country part of what damaged it was the left itself especially the communist-led left because when the Nazi-Soviet pact uh, happened and and suddenly there's Stalin sitting down with Hitler the American Communist Party very stupidly defended that as if it was a, a correct then became anti-war. And, and and took an anti-war stance for a, few, a year or so. Um, and then when the Soviet Union was invaded by Hitler, they switched. Well, that kind of turned the stomach of some people in the party, but more the, the allies and coalition members in the developing New Deal coalition were, were burned by this. The war situation kind of concealed that split to some extent because... US and Russia were allies, there was a general toning down, you know, in fact, there was a sort of pro-Soviet mainstream view that to encourage Americans to accept the Soviet Union as our wartime ally. But after the war, this this, uh, division became the central part of American politics. The Republicans used the center-left coalition of the 30s to try to discredit the New Deal, to try to uh, the Democratic Party split. The communists supported Henry Wallace running on a third-party ticket. He'd been the vice president under Roosevelt. Uh, he ran against Truman against the Cold War, but on a third-party uh, strategy that was a, a real failure. And more people who now think that's still plausible should take a look at the, how catastrophic uh, that was because it furthered the split that could otherwise you know, in a more normal politics uh you could you could imagine that what if you take let's say McGovern in nineteen seventy two was was a kind of center left coalition back in the mainstream of politics, maybe not the best example, but
1: let me help you out there because I think McGovern aside and the and the the strengths or weaknesses of him as a candidate and that moment, I do totally agree with you that. There's a continuity between the moment of opportunity and, and loss in the 30s and then again in the 60s and then again in the, the labor liberal uh, civil rights coalition um, that was another moment that got blown up around, you know, around Vietnam and a lot of mistakes uh, on all sides and so forth. So I, I would agree with you, McGovern aside. That moment was a was yeah,
0: an and and actually McGovern had been a Wallace supporter. Oh really? In his, That's in his youth. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one thing that occurs to me in this conversation is to point out something I hadn't really foregrounded. I don't think till this moment that that generation who came out of the '30s or became or part of the Socialist Party or Communist Party or other explicit left wing groups, people like Michael Harrington or or say Bayard Rustin or A. J. Musty um, and other lesser known labor organizers. So they continued their work within whatever you know, the AF within the AFL CIO, within the Democratic Party. It was Rustin who organized the march on Washington in nineteen sixty-three. It was Rustin who was at, who was the behind-the-scenes advisor to Martin Luther King from the time of Montgomery on. Um, and not as a socialist, although it was it was known that he was, among other parts of his personality, he was a socialist, but but he was a savvy political strategist with, with principles. Uh, and he's one example. There are many others. The, a lot of the Southern movement of the late 50s and early 60s the senior advisors or the, the the veteran figures in the South, white leftists in the South, had been socialists and communists in an earlier period. Uh, Hoover tried to discredit King because of another guy, Stanley Levinson, who was an advisor of King, who presumably had been some kind of communist earlier. But when you look at the lives of the people who we, who we know were... The, the the pioneer leaders of the civil rights movement, Ella Baker's another case. Where did she come from? What was her schooling politically? So I'm trying to paint a little bit of a background for the what became my generation, the 60s red diaper baby and other young leftists looking around. you know what what could we see about a left?
1: You're emerging as young thinkers, and leaders in a time where there are socialists around, but not a strong socialist organization or movement. Set the scene. What, what is influencing you? What do you care about? How do, how, what's the, what's the road to port here on?
0: There were intellectual influences like the monthly review magazine, Paul Sweezy, Leo Huberman, a Marxist journal that was independent of the communist party. Uh, and that was very smart. But their view, overwhelmingly, what they were saying was, well, there's no hope for a left in the U.S. So it has to come from the third world. It has to come from China. It has to come from Africa and Latin America. And the U.S. would be the last place you can find a left. Well, that's not great news for you know, someone in, who's 20 years old looking around for uh, political uh, avenues of expression but what began to happen out of the partly out of the civil rights movement's influence was a coming together of uh young people from and i in in those early years of the 60s was meeting people in ann arbor where we were whose parents might have been anti-communist socialists or they were red diaper babies or they were Quakers, you know, and and had other kinds of um, sort of left-wing or progressive heritage in their own background. And we were all part of the same civil rights activism that was beginning to start there. Uh, And uh, uh, picketing of Woolworths to protest their segregated lunch counters in the South would be a good case Uh, in 1960. There was something in the air. It's the only way I can put it. That some new kind of thinking was possible and necessary at this point. That thinking wasn't going to start with older people. That our generation, for some reason, and it's pretty, we have a Yiddish term, chutzpah. It's, there's a lot of chutzpah in the belief that at age 20, you were going to solve the problems of the left that the older generations had failed to solve. Yet we thought so. Um, and it wasn't in retrospect, that we had no influences from the past. We did. But they tended to be people who were independent, who were not party-identified. I don't mean just CP, but any party. Um, One of my heroes was A.J. Musty, who had experimented his entire life, and I mean decades, with different ways of being a revolutionary pacifist Gandhi and Marxists. What kind of fusion is that? Gandhian Marxism. Mm-hmm. And there was Seawright Mills, who said, "I'm a plain Marxist," which very explicitly meant, "I'm not part of any party." Marx is a tool, among other tools. And what I've since learned, by the way, is that um, this is this impulse to find a new vocabulary and a new way of thinking on the left isn't simply something that emerged in the late 50s, early 60s. One of the father figures of the new left turned out to be John Dewey, who was not alive at the time of the 60s, but who had been, uh, he, was a, he was America's philosopher. And you wouldn't think at first glance that he would be a guide for the left, but, but Dewey was a socialist, and explicitly so. And he wanted to find something in this country's uh, cultural and political uh, foundations that, instead of Marxism, what could be a foundation for an American left that would be radical uh, and 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 have appeal to Americans. And he is, I think, the originator, if there's any single thinker, of the idea that a radical democracy participatory democracy even use that phrase um is the way to think about the alternative to uh to a capitalist society uh that would fit into the american vocabulary and the american uh, american cultural framework tom hayden who was who was in the early days of SDS, the beginning of SDS, was assigned the job of writing some kind of uh, manifesto for the new left. The decision at Port Huron was it was it was understood from the beginning that we weren't going to define the new left with the word socialism uh, because the baggage of the word socialism included, Geraco, what you were talking about—the Leninist baggage, the horrors of the Soviet Union and communism—but at the same time, Hayden and others who had not been red diaper babies, he came out of the heartland of of, of America. They were disgusted by the obsessive anti-communism of of the people like Mike Harrington that that that, that represented the socialist movement to them. Tom Hayden and people. And, and others at Port Huron were thinking this anti-communism as it's practiced feeds the Cold War. it feeds into uh, repression of the left. it feeds into uh, that that's one problem with it. We need some way to supersede that and and one of the big problems with the anti-communist left way of behaving in those early days was if you were seen as Stalinoid, that was a term that Mike Harrington used. Stalinoid. Well, what's Stalinoid? It's someone who won't condemn the Soviet Union in the same terms that, let's say, Harrington did uh, because of worry about supporting the Cold War and the arms race. Um, The Nation magazine was Stalinoid well, if the nation was Stalinoid, it meant they were beyond the pale. You weren't really supposed to ally with the Nation magazine, with I. F. Stone. They they were they were soft on the Soviet Union, even though Stone was a bitter critic of of uh, of the Soviet Communist Party because he wouldn't buy into Cold War politics. Again, I'm probably oversimplifying, but that's. When Tom Hayden drafted the Port Huron Statement, part of what he wrote was a critique of anti-communism, not in order to defend Soviet Union in any way, but simply to say, we need to supersede this.
1: Yeah, I find that part of the, of the Port Huron Statement like, totally maddening for that Well, you, should, that you shouldn't.
0: It's it, it very creative because it presaged, if, you, if that's a word, uh, what happened in the European Left? Euro-socialism, Euro-communism. Later, much later, uh, there's this recognition that uh, too much oversimplification. I'll tell you one story that might affect your thinking about this, Duraka. Our parent organization, which which had the League for Industrial Democracy, which had been providing the budget for for the SDS and and Hayden and Al Haber and others were staff members paid by the LID. They decided after Port Huron, they hadn't even the statement hadn't even been revised and written, but they had heard that we had it was stalinoid or <laughs> so. Um, and so they fired Hayden and Haber. And then there was a hearing. You know, Hayden and Haber said, let give us due process, let's have a little hearing about this. And we, the founding council of SDS, met in New York and listened to the recording of the hearing. So this is one of the moments in the recording that I thought was pretty revealing. Um, Harrington, I think, says, well, one thing you guys did that was extremely wrong, he says to Haber and Hayden, is you communicated with an organization called the Japanese Anti-A and H-bomb association. And we know that that's a Soviet front. So Haber says, well, why don't you ask us what we said to them? And Harrington said, it doesn't matter. Our rule is you don't communicate with these people. So Haber says, well, what we communicated with them is that we didn't want to have anything to do with them because they were a Soviet front. That's what we communicated with them. And it was a a moment of really... (laughs) Uh, I think Michael, you know, and Michael Harrington himself uh, really transformed his interpretation of a lot of those events, you know, within the decade after, um, you know, that he had been much too judgmental, much too hasty in his conclusions about what what Port Huron meant and what SDS was about. That, that's where I'm coming from in, in my efforts to reconstruct this history. Um, we... we there's one other thing I want to say about the alternative society that we were trying to imagine in writing the Port Huron Statement. What, how did we define it? Um, we were interested in other traditions within the left that seemed in the 19th century and, and much of the previous time were separate from socialism but seemed relevant, like anarchism, uh, uh, like pacifism. Like uh, certain part, of the left wing, so to speak, of of the progressive movement of the you know early twentieth century, like radical democracy. Uh, and it seemed like a new terminology was needed to capture the fullness of this tradition that we were identifying with. Um, so uh, some people think Portneyron avoided the word socialism because it was, a bad word and it had all the negative baggage in American political culture and that's undoubtedly a part of it but I I always felt from the beginning that uh, it was a creative impulse that led to say let's not define ourselves as socialists let's leave this question open uh, about what it is that we are reaching for but the heart of it is not ambiguous or vague, that, that vague, it's to fulfill a radical understanding of de- democratic participation in the decisions that affect people. So participatory democracy means uh, you construct an institution, whether it's a workplace or a community or a city or a prison or a mental hospital or a family. One of the ways you examine those institutions, a fundamental way, is how much do the underlings within that institution have a voice, have a chance, how that decision, how how that institution operates in terms of their interests, in terms of their needs. Instead of looking for an alternative system, you want to engage in an ongoing radicalizing process of change uh, uh, which, which privileges movements rather than parties. Uh, as the, as the, as the organized center of, of, of the, of the change effort. Um, That's how I see it. Uh, And, but we were convinced, here's, here's where we were so wrong, (laughs) that socialism had no future as an idea. Uh, And so one of the big questions for you and me on this podcast, but for the left, um, of course, is how come socialism is back as a framework that people are reaching for rather than rejecting? How come Bernie Sanders can be defining himself as a democratic socialist and yet be the most pop, single most popular politician, I think, in this country in spite of that or because of that? I'm really interested in trying to figure that question out.
1: Well, I mean, I, I I, think it's because the uh, optimism of that moment in the 60s that a whole bunch of historical questions were settled questions was just misplaced. Um, and a whole bunch of hardcore realities started to flood back um, very soon in the 70s and with a vengeance in the 80s. The fact that the welfare state couldn't be taken for granted. So this sort of notion of realigning politics around a liberal American in the American sense, liberal welfare state and some transcendental new politics. That just isn't how the cookie crumbled. Um, And very soon we were back in a like civilization. Should we have a welfare state versus not? Um, And, and then, and so then in that context, and then we have the nineties where, you know, the Clintonism and Blairism was also like, oh, those, all those historical questions of class. And so those are all, and, and, and with Clintonism that people don't remember, he also sort of thought the same thing about race. Um, and so we're going to move on to this neoliberal future of markets and the world is flat and everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. So <laughs> fast forward, the consequences of all of those delusions is that we're back to a very rapacious kind of capitalism. The welfare state is struggling, um, needs to be reinvigorated and defended. Um, And so we could talk about it using other words, but certainly the right wing is going to keep reminding us that we're actually having an argument about socialism and capitalism. And so I, I think it was Bernie coming at the right moment with a particular kind of political honesty uh, combined with there being a generation of voters who don't remember the Soviet union or any of those, you know, that stigma just being like, wait a minute, if I've been told that socialism all my life, I've been told that socialism is, you know, public schools and, um, taxing the rich and, uh, a welfare state and those kinds of things, then, you know, I'm a socialist. So that, I mean, that, that's, that's how I think we got
0: here. Well, you're making a very important point, uh, which is that in the 60s, there was absolute consensus, not only among the new leftists, but across the intellectual spectrum, that the welfare state, that the New Deal and its legacy was definitely the status quo. And we use terms like corporate liberalism to mean that, to mean that the corporate sector uh, was able to see the welfare state uh, as part of what they needed to maintain social stability and legitimacy and working class morale, you might say. Um, and to and one of the functions of the welfare state was to pay a social wage to workers that could protect the profit margins of private companies, corporations. That's how. And you know, to us, it was completely obvious. I'm being sarcastic, that the welfare state was very much a tool of late capitalism, and and we learned that in in our mainstream college classes, um, and it's part of what. Why was Herbert Marcuse a big critic? Because he was against the welfare state framework. He was looking for something beyond the welfare state. C Wright Mills, you know, assumed that the power elite would keep using a liberal rhetoric while uh, maintaining a a control over the society. And so this is how we thought of it. Um, And I'm not defending it. I think you're absolutely right in saying that one of the big shocks of the 70s was the uh, corporate abandonment of the welfare state in favor of, in some cases, very explicit class warfare from above. Uh, to lower wages, not to not to subsidize workers with social wages, but to lower taxes and wages, according to the, this line, uh, because the U.S. had to be competitive in the global marketplace. And uh, yes, yeah, so in the '70s, um, you know, Tom Aiden ran for U.S. Senate in California. He got a million and a half votes. Uh, he didn't win the nomination, but he ran the Democratic Party. And after that, he formed an organization called the Campaign for Economic Democracy. So it wasn't from the from, from our particular circles of New Left Circles evolution. W- economic democracy was the term we began to use, uh, coupling it with social democracy and political democracy. So three forms of democracy interwoven but socialism still wasn't uh the label we used uh because and i think by then because we didn't uh, tom hayden i'm sure believe that if he said i'm forming the californians for the socialism organization it would get nowhere well, and,
1: it, and he probably would he probably would have been right yeah um but the the uh but it is it's just it is interesting that uh a tradition of euphemisms and sort of talking around things is has dried up and i for one just completely welcome it because i think it's able to we're able to i mean it's not like the good thinking around participatory democracy or as a beautiful explanation of socialism talking about economic social and political democracy i think that's a great way to continue the conversation but what i like is that we can get back to a kind of shorthand an easier, uh, more politically honest conversation about, um, about what, about a, a systematic criticism, a politics that's, that's based in a systematic criticism of capitalism itself. And even if that's not, uh, a politics that's hyper radical and wants us to break with capitalism tomorrow, It's still rooted in an understanding that there are some things that are just fundamentally anti-human and inefficient and anti-planet about capitalism as a system, um, which is what I'd like to jump into in our next episode.
0: Well, I want to just say briefly what I'm hoping by the end of this season we will have thoroughly explored in addition to what you just said, which is one of our fundamental purposes, what you just laid out, is two things that are not discussed much one is what do people mean by socialism I mean this is a remarkably undefined term and I'd like to explore what the term has referred to over over history but even more so what it looks like people are thinking they mean by it uh, I but I think crucial point that people in the early SDS understood but and I'd like to bring back this way of thinking. If you think that there's a system called capitalism and that has to be replaced by a system called socialism, does that lead you to an attitude of dismissal toward what appeared to be reformist politics that then leads you to a kind of measuring of how do we know that socialism is progressing it's how many people believe in it it's it's the idea that the strategy of change is to persuade people to become socialists and i reject that i don't and so if we agree with that then let's examine me too the, uh, when we can i agree with you what's the problem with thinking that w- the main job of socialists or of DSA and groups like that is to convince people about socialism. What's the alternative strategies that, that we prefer you and me. And, and what are the dangers and the dangers is a kind of tribalism and sectarianism that will come back because if you're measuring who's a socialist
1: as the, as the goal, as you know, that's what we're after to make socialist. It's back and it it never went away. And and as I was Trying to go through in the, in the outline to just put it in context is this is a century-old question. Yes, it that is. It, in my mind, people solved a hundred years ago, and we've just allowed like a pathological version of socialism to persist alongside of. Yeah,
0: and that's what we, you and I, are on this planet now to correct from here on <laughs> in. this
1: <laughs> So I think
0: uh, to wind things up now, I'd like to play a a bit of tape. You might say of some of the people who were at the Port Huron Conference of SDS in 1962 talking about the vision of participatory democracy that was enunciated in the statement, what it meant to them. And you're going to hear the voices of Tom Hayden, who was the primary author of the Port Huron Statement, of Bob Ross, who at the time of the conference was a vice president of SDS, and Steve Max, who was the staff organizer for SDS during that period. And they're pretty good, I think, um, articulations of what we at Port Huron were thinking was a good way to frame our vision of a new society. What we were about, we the the activists, was the resurrection of the decentralized democracy, or the direct democracy, or the town-meeting democracy. There was a, a kind of element in American history from the bottom up. The vision of participatory democracy is that people separately and together have the power to direct the key institutions of the society, power to control their own lives. Democracy was something that you go out and do every day and that it wasn't merely voting for, for representatives every couple of years, but that, uh, that you, you, found, you found ways of implementing uh, democracy uh, every time you got up in the morning. Uh, if you, you, you didn't wait for uh, the government to pass a civil rights law if you couldn't get into the barber shop, You opened the doors and you, you went in. I mean, that was, the, that was the essence of what participatory democracy was about.
1: In the gloom of mighty cities, it's labora. We're toiling on like chattel slaves of old. And our master's hope to keep us ever thus beneath their heels. And to coin our very lifeblood into gold. But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem. When each man can live his life secure and free. When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all, in the commonwealth of toil.